0: So over the next three weeks tonight, this is the first Sunday in December, uh, starts our, our Advent, and over the next three weeks um, leading up to Christmas, uh, I'll be going through three Psalms, uh, Psalm 22, 23, and 24, and then uh, the week of Christmas, um, I believe Ron will be preaching, is that correct, Ron? And then the week of New Year's, uh, Michael will be preaching, and we're my wife and I are going to go on a, and the family go, to, uh, go on a little vacation, so you can be in prayer with us about that, being able to go back to Nebraska and see the snow, and, and then we'll run back as fast as we can, believe me. Uh, you only have to be there a few weeks, and you realize uh, how much you love the weather in California. So, um, so you can be in prayer with us about that. But the next few weeks, we want to go through these three Psalms, and um, there's a lot here and we're not going to be able to unpack it all, but we're going to unpack as much as we can and try to cover a psalm a week. And as you can see, Psalm 22 is a very long song, psalm, and um, and we only read 11 verses of in introduction. But we're going to try to unpack the entire chapter. So if you just bear with me as we go through it, we will be able to get to the end by the end of the morning. And we're also going to do the Lord's Supper today as well. So we have a lot to do. The three chapters, the three Psalms that are written by David um, could be titled this way, and this is the way that we'll look at them the next three weeks. Uh, This week, we'll look at the gracious substitute, or Jesus Christ, our, our gracious substitute. Next week, we'll look at Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. And the last week, or the third week, we'll look at chapter 24, or Psalm 24, and look at Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior. The first chapter... The first psalm that we are going to focus on, chapter number 22, is basically the psalm of the cross. And um, you'll see right away how this psalm is a direct uh, relation to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have terms in this psalm that are repeated word for word in the crucifixion of the Lord. Um, The very first phrase in Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which we find in Matthew 27, 46, when Jesus Christ is on the cross and he cries out, Eli, Eli, lamus sabachthani," which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the fact that they pierced his hands and his feet, they, they divided his garments and they cast lots on him. The very last phrase in Psalm 22 uh, is that he, that he has done it and this simply Is translated in the New Testament. It is finished, or it is complete. At least seven times in Psalm 22, you have direct quotes or direct relation to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If not, possibly more than that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this: that it's possible that the that Psalm 22 was quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ word for word on the cross. And we don't know that to be a reality. We don't know that to be a fact. We do see a number, again, of direct quotes in the Lord, from the Lord Jesus Christ in relation to Psalm 22, but he speculates that it's possible that he could have actually quoted the entire psalm from the cross in relation to his crucifixion. It is also said about Psalm 22 that this psalm also relates to, to David or some Theologians have tried to kind of paint David's circumstances and David's situations into this psalm and say, it's not about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, but it's more about David and his affliction. And we definitely can see that. We can see that David did face a number of afflictions. But there's there's too much in Psalm 22 that is directly... uh, connected to the cross of Christ, not to see Christ crucified in Psalm chapter number 22. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, David and his affliction may be here, may well be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, those who see Jesus in Psalm 22 will probably neither see nor care to see David. I loved that quote when I was reading it this week because that is true. And that's not just true about this text, but it's true about life. As we are able to see Christ, as we're able to stand in the presence of the the Son of God and to bask in the glory of his greatness and to (coughs) dwell (coughs) in his presence and live in the light of his glory, it begins very quickly to minimize us. It begins to minimize problems and circumstances and situations because in light of Christ, in the light of all that he has done and who he is, all of those, thing, all of those things seem very insignificant and very small. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in, 1 in 2 Corinthians 4 that his light affliction, which is but for a moment, this is how Paul can refer to that. He referred to it in light of the glory of Christ and that glory being in him. We know that the crucifixion of Christ was a reminder of Christ's, grace, of Christ's grace in regards to our salvation. It is the substitutionary atonement of Christ in which he bore our sins on his own body He carried our sins to the cross and he paid the ultimate price to satisfy the wrath of a just and holy judge on our behalf. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He satisfied a perfectly holy judge's anger towards sin in taking that sin and paying the full and utter price for that sin. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I I want you to be aware this morning that that is not applicable to everybody. It doesn't imply that Jesus Christ has paid the price and satisfied God's wrath for everybody's sin in the whole world. What is implied is that there's a group of people for whom Jesus Christ has satisfied, has, has fully propitiated or satisfied God's wrath for their sins. You say, Pastor John, who is that group of people? That group of people is all those who will place their faith in Jesus Christ and embrace what he's done for them on the cross. There is no magic trick to it. There's nothing you have to do to earn it or deserve it. It is embracing what he has already done in the cross for your sins that causes it to be effective for you. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for everyone in the whole world, but it's only effective, it's only applicable, it only matters to those who embrace what he did for us in the cross. Otherwise, folks, the reality of it is, is the cross is a a very negative thing. The cross is a very horrible thing because what the cross displays to those who have rejected what Jesus Christ has done is the cross displays how angry God is towards sin. That God in heaven would send his only son and put him through the extraordinary sufferings of the cross as a display of his anger and hatred towards sin. My friend, if you're here with us this morning and you have not embraced what Jesus Christ has done for you in the cross, my challenge to you, my call to you is is by faith, humble yourselves before him and embrace the fact that you cannot save yourself, but Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for your salvation, everything necessary for your salvation. Embrace him in faith. Trust him. Turn away from yourself and your pride and your sin and embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you in the cross. This idea of Jesus Christ being the substitutionary atonement, meaning that he stood in our place, is described for us in many passages of Scripture in the New Testament. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Jesus Christ died for our sins. It doesn't say that Jesus Christ died for his sins, it says that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The the Greek preposition here for the word for, or translated for, is the word hupar, and and it simply means in the place of or for the benefit of. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he stood in our place. He took on himself our sins. He did not pay for anything that he had done, but he paid the price for us who had sinned against Almighty God and had deserved his wrath. Jesus Christ embraced the wrath of the Father so that we would not have to because we ultimately could not. The reason why hell is eternal, my friend, And the reason why hell is painful is because we, in and of ourselves, will never be able to satisfy God's wrath towards sin. God's wrath towards sin, when poured out on humanity, will never end. There is truly only one payment that is sufficient to satisfy God's wrath towards sin, and that is the perfect, righteous payment of his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And we can benefit from that by embracing it in faith. You may say, Pastor John, I'll work my way there. I'll I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll put money in the offering plate and I'll be catechized and I'll be baptized and I'll, I'll do all of these things and God will surely accept me based upon the things that I have done. And my friends, that is a foolish way of thinking. God will not accept anyone into heaven based upon what they have done, but God will accept those into heaven based upon what Jesus Christ has done for them. That is the only hope that we have. Romans 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, for God showed his love for us. God displayed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's that word again. He died in our place. He died as a substitute for us. If you go to Isaiah 53, the Bible says that he took upon himself our sins He took upon himself our iniquities. He was was bruised and afflicted for our transgressions. And by his stripes, and by his stripes, we are healed. Amen? That's a wonderful truth of the gospel. And that is a hope that we should have as Christians, that in and through Christ we can experience this deliverance. The 22nd Psalm just simply describes this work, and I, I want to unpack it for you as, as, as diligently as I possibly can this morning with, without um, spending a, an, an over or unnecessary amount of time doing it. So, we're going to look at four things. We're going to look, first of all, at Jesus Christ's suffering on the cross. And it's important that we understand Jesus Christ's suffering so that we can know a few things. Number one is we can know the su- significance of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness is not minimized by um, a, a, an easy death. Our sinfulness is maximized by a, a very extreme death that Jesus Christ experienced, a, a, a horrible death. It maximizes the nature of our sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it tells us in, verse number, in chapter 6 and verse 23 that the price for our sin, the wages of our sin, is death. Sin is not a small thing, my friend. Sin is not a, a minimized thing. Sin is not an insignificant thing. Matter of fact, the, the apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans where sin did abound. In other words, where sin was maximized, where not we sinned a lot, but we understood the extent of our sins. We recognized how hor- horrific our sins are. The Lord says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Amen? It's such a blessing. But it comes when we maximize, when we recognize how horrific our sins are. The cross helps us to see how horrible our sins are. The cross helps us to see how much God loves us. It helps us to see John three sixteen in a very, very vivid way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God loved the world in such a way that he is going to put his only son through this. What we're going to read here in a moment, he's going to put his only son through this because of his love for you and his love for me. To bring salvation to us, it took the expense, the high price of his own son's life his own son's sacrifice and this was no insignificant sacrifice for our sins we also see in the cross a pattern the lord gives us a pattern by which we suffer jesus says to us the apostle peter tells us that he suffered in such a way as to leave an example for us that we might know how to that we might also know how to suffer So we're gonna see these things unfold here in this passage of scripture. So first of all, we're gonna look at his suffering. And there's four things that go along with his suffering. Let me just read verse number one. The Bible says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. What we see At the beginning of this text is is Jesus Christ experiencing spiritual anguish. Separation from God. Having God the Father, his his companion for eternity. His his close friend for eternity. Having him in that moment turn his his back on the son. Not being able to even look at his own son because he was the full expression of sin. We, we don't realize that 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That when, G, when God the Father looked down on his son hanging on the cross, he saw sin. And he hated sin. And he still hates sin. Sin is the very defiance of who God is. He hangs on the tree and he experiences separation from God. He experiences God for the first time, God the Father and God the Son, having conflict in their their fellowship. On that day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus faced God as the essence of of all that God hates. Jesus stood before God and he was the essence of everything that God the Father was against. He faced God as the most perfect, just, holy, and righteous judge. He faced God whose judgment and wrath would be in that moment on full display. We can't even fathom it. It doesn't even make sense to us. It's incomprehensible to imagine because we can't even imagine doing that to our own children. This was a horrific event spiritually for the Lord Jesus Christ to be forsaken by the Father But he had to embrace that, my friends, because in that moment, all of humanity was forsaken by the Father. All of humanity was cast into sin. All of humanity was sinful. Jesus Christ had to identify with us in order to pay the price for us. It wasn't until his resurrection that new life began to enter into the hearts of us. Individuals. It wasn't until his resurrection that salvation was sealed by the Holy Spirit of our God. Jesus Christ faced rejection by his Father in the same way that sinners face rejection by God every day. Many theologians believe that the reason for the darkness that that covered the cross between the sixth and the ninth hour was that man in his humanity could not handle the display of God's full wrath on his own son. It was unbearable for human eyes to see the full wrath and anger of God and the pain and anguish of Jesus Christ so god veiled it in darkness Romans 1:18 says the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth This is the most significant moment on the cross This is the moment where Jesus Christ cries out In all other things, we see Jesus Christ going to the slaughter like a sheep before his shears is dumb. He opened not his mouth. He didn't cry out. He didn't defend himself. But in this moment, in this spiritual moment of being forsaken by the Father, turned his back on him, in that moment, that was the most most horrific moment in history. But yet it was the most blessed moment because it is through that moment that we have salvation. Spiritual anguish. Number two, emotional anguish. You go down in verse number six, he says, but I am a worm and not a man. In other words, I'm the the lowliest of animals, insignificant as can be scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. The, 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 the analogy, the picture here through these terms is they, they mock him with terms that are um, very demeaning. They look, at, they look at him like people look at Christians today and they think, oh, they're just so foolish. Foolish. Oh, they just believe, and it's just not going to work out. And they wagged their heads at Jesus. They walked around him, and they wagged their heads at him. And he even says here that they wagged their heads at him, saying, He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. In other words, they say, What foolishness this man, what a fool this man is, for him to believe in the Father. In his emotional anguish, he faced abandonment, loneliness. We know that in that moment, Christ was forsaken by the Father. We know that in that moment, his disciples had fled from him. In that moment, according to Scripture in John 19, there were only a few, three, I believe, women and one disciple who were left, and that was John the Beloved. You ever feel abandoned like that before? You ever experience that? You ever feel like Jesus felt when he was, you ever feel like God had turned, has turned his back on you? You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you've been abandoned? Like you're all by yourself? If what you see in this process is Jesus Christ is identifying with us as people. So that, according to Hebrews 2, he can be a help to us. He, he faced cruelty and mocking They said terms like he's worthless, he's hopeless, he's helpless, he's useless. He is less than a human being. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Here's what the, here's what the uh, Isaiah is saying here. He's saying that we saw Jesus in such a horrible way that we believed that God was judging him for his own horribleness. We believed that he was smitten by God because he was such a, a loser. That's what they're saying. God wanted nothing to do with him. That's what they they were saying. That's how they were mocking him. Jesus Christ faced cruelty and mocking. They said things like he was vile, he was worthless and helpless. They showed disrespect for him. They they cast lots for his garments. The garments in a normal situation would have been saved, kind of like they, they give the flag to somebody who's Whose loved one has passed away that was in the military and this time out of respect for the family they would crucify but save the garments and they would give them to the family but instead in this situation they're casting lots for Jesus Christ's garments as a sign of disrespect to show the insignificance not only of Jesus but also of his family they showed utter disrespect for him. You ever felt that way? You see Jesus Christ doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't Done first. He says in verse number, nine, uh, verse number 12, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. This is spiritual warfare that Jesus Christ is speaking of. The bulls of Bashan were, were very large bulls, they were enormous, uh, out, out of sorts sized bulls with, 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 with huge muscles. I mean, You you can Google it and you can see pictures of them. They were enormous animals. And many people believe that they they got this enormous size from being possessed by demons. Jesus is referring to in this text that he is facing great conflict, not just in a physical way, but he he was being attacked in those moments by satanic attacks or demon attacks. We know the Bible says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, be be strong, be courageous, be watchful, for your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he may devour. Verse number 13, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravishing and roaring lion. Matter of fact, in verse number 1, at the very end of that verse where he says, why are you so far from me, from saving me from the words of my the word here in the Hebrew literally means roaring. If you've ever heard a lion or a very strong animal that is just close to death and how that they're groaning and roaring, that's the picture given to us in verse number one. Jesus did not only face physical anguish, but Jesus Christ faced spiritual anguish. He was attacked by demonic forces His physical anguish in number three, and I'm not gonna get a lot into this, but verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within my breast. My uh, strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. He goes on, I can count all my bones. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments amongst them, and they clothe, and, and, and my clothing they cast lots. I'm not going to get a lot into this, but initially he talks about being a drink offering. I am, I am poured out like water. A drink offering was something that was, for the most part in the Old Testament related to strong drink, alcohol. A strong drink or wine is referred to in the Old Testament. What he is saying is is here in this moment that a drink offering was the sacrifice of something that could bring you relief. It was a sacrifice of something that could bring you relief. It was the pouring out of something. Jesus Christ initially when he was on the cross was, was offered something of that nature to bring relief from the pain and he rejected it. He refused it. Once he tasted of it, he refused it. Because in this moment, he was showing us, he was picturing for us the the full acceptance of God's wrath with the the massive nature of the pain that was involved in that. Refusing anything that would numb or eliminate the pain. This is why Jesus tells us, he tells us about John the Baptist. He says, Make sure that John the Baptist does not drink any strong drink or wine because he will be what? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He tells us in in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the idea of a drink offering. It is laying down the, 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 the numbing elements of this world so that we don't have to face the pain that comes And suffering those pains willingly as Jesus Christ did. That's what this idea of being poured out like a drink offering is about. Paul says it in 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 2 Timothy 4. He says, I am being poured out. His life was being poured out as a drink offering. Jesus Christ also, his life was poured out as an offering. He refused those things that would numb the pain so that he could face the pain fully for us. His bones were out of joint. He could number his bones, meaning one of two things. Either he was so dehydrated that his skin had stuck to his bones and he could look at them and he could see all of his bones through his skin. Or that his skin, through the beatings that he had experienced, that his skin was torn off of his body and his bones were then exposed Both realities are taught and believed. And probably both are realities. Jesus Christ could number his own bones. He was faced with a crown of thorns. Men spit on him. They punched him. They mocked him. They whipped him with a cat of nine tails. They nailed him to the cross with with nails in his hands and nails in his feet. This is the physical anguish that Jesus Christ faced when he was on the cross, paying the full price for our sins because he loved us and cared for us. This is not just a picture of Jesus Christ paying for our sins. It's also a picture of his love for us and it's a way for us to understand that he understands us. And that by his understanding us, we can follow in his steps as we walk through this life. He tells us in Hebrews 2 and verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is now able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, all of the things that I just mentioned, if you've ever been there before, people laughing and mocking you, feeling rejected by people, feeling rejected by God. Have you ever been in those moments before where you are physically in pain and suffering? Remember this, Jesus has been through it. Anybody out there ever feel like Jesus just doesn't understand us? You can't read the Bible in Psalm 22 and conclude that Jesus doesn't understand us. He understands us. There's no suffering, there's no heartache There's no pain that you or I will ever face that Jesus Christ hasn't faced substantially more. Why? Well, to show the essence of our sins, to show his love for us, and to show that he is connected to us, that he has been through what we have been through so that when we face those difficulties in life, we will go to him for help. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 that we can come boldly because our high priest has tasted what we've tasted. He's been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. We can now come boldly into the throne of grace and receive what? Mercy. Receive mercy, receive help. It's through. Jesus' suffering. It's through Jesus' rejection. It's through people mocking him and laughing at him and spitting upon him and punching him. You know, some, some of those things are worse than the physical scourging. It's through those things that we can know I, I can go to Jesus and he understands what I've been through. He knows what I'm going through. This is his suffering. No, number two is his solace. His, his security, um, that which brought him comfort in the midst of his suffering. We're reminded in Hebrews 12 and verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It's so amazing, the Bible says that the joy that was set before him was what motivated him to enduring the cross. And he despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Here here is what Christ trusted in. Here is what Christ leaned on. Here is what Christ um, benefited from in the midst of his suffering. And here are some things for us to benefit from in the middle of our suffering. Listen to what verse number three says. You are holy. Here's what Jesus says. In the midst of this, what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is God the Father is always holy. Holy he's never not holy. Nothing that God the Father does will ever be unholy. This was a comfort to the heart of Christ in this very moment where God in verse number 1 has forsaken him, in verse number 2 he says yet, it's interesting in verse number 3 he says yet, it's interesting you have that transitional word yet at the same time that God has turned his back on his son, at the same moment yet God you are still you are still holy. Folks, listen, let us never question the holiness of our God. In the deepest and darkest, darkest moments of life, let us know that our God is holy and everything that he does is right. It's hard sometimes to imagine that, but even in the face of all that Jesus Christ was facing, he knew that God was holy fair, righteous and never to be questioned. He says not only that, verse number 4, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were never and were not put to shame. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his faith from them, but has heard when he cried to him. Not only do we see the father's holiness in the midst of this and Christ resting in that, but we see the father's faithfulness in this. The son rested in the fact that the father was not only holy, but that he was faithful. That he would not utterly forsake him as he promised him in this word, that he would not let his son see corruption the father is faithful hebrews 13 and verse 5 the bible says he will never leave us nor forsake us the father is not only the son did not only rest in the father's faithfulness but he rested in the father's purposes also watch what he says here in in verse number Um, verse number nine, he starts off again with that transitional word, yet. In other words, at the same time, he says, you are the one who took me from the womb. And you can read the rest, but here's what Jesus is saying, is God, you have a purpose in all of this. In the midst of my darkest hour, in the midst of my greatest pain, in the midst of my most desperate suffering, we can be restful in the fact that God has a purpose for it. Romans 8, 28 is one of our most familiar verses in the scriptures. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus says to the father, you're the one that took me out of the womb. You're the one that placed me here. You're the one with the purpose. Christ throughout the gospel says, my purpose for being here is to fulfill the will of him who sent me. Oh, that in our moments of despair, we might see the holiness, faithfulness, and the purposes of our God. And then he goes on in verse number 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me, From the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I'm just going to stop there. You can read on if you would like. The rest explains what he says here. Jesus Christ rests in the promise of God, he speaks as though he has already been resurrected. He speaks confident in the fact that he will be resurrected and when he is resurrected, he will minister into the lives of those who are around him. Jesus Christ rested in God's sovereign resurrection. You think about what 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, then we are still in our sins. And if we are still in our sins, then our faith, And our life is to be pitiable. Jesus Christ rested in the promises of God. And in those dark moments of life, that's where we have to find our rest. That's where we have to find our comfort. That's where we have to find our peace is that God has made promises to us in His Word, and He will never fail those promises. He has never failed those promises. When Jesus speaks to his disciples in John 14, speaking to them about the coming crucifixion, he says to them, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus Christ rested in the promises of the Father. Even in his humanity, he rested in the promises of God. And in those moments, we can also rest in the promises of our God. Number three, his supplication. We also notice this in the midst of these dark moments of life, in the midst of these moments of forsaking and suffering and and for abandonment and loneliness. in In the midst of all of these, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus Christ rested in the Father in these things, but he also prayed to the Father in these moments. We see in verse number 11, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help, And then in verse number 19, But you, O Lord, be do not be far off. O you who are my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. Jesus Christ, while resting in the sovereignty and holiness and goodness of God, never forsook the necessity of and the opportunity to pray to that God. In the moment of the darkest part of Jesus Christ's life, he found peace and rest by crying out to God. He found rest by reaching out to the one who could solve his problems. We know in the garden, Jesus Christ cried out, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But he says, but not my will, but thy will be done. In the darkest hour of his life, the Bible says that when he was in the garden, in these times of prayer, he was sweating as if it were great drops of blood. That's the intenseness of that moment. And what was Jesus Christ's prayer? It's no different than our prayer. Lord, please take this away. Lord, please don't let me take of this cup. This cup is painful and and horrible. But Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, God might have a will in that cup for you. God, yes, that cup might be full of suffering and that cup might be full of heartache, but it's maybe that that cup is God's purpose for making you what he wants you to be and not just for that, but for blessing other people as he does through his own son, Jesus Christ. Yes, our hearts should, we should never be afraid of falling down before our Father and saying, God, please take this cup away from me. But Lord, help us to never end our prayer that way. Help us to end our prayer with not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. He prayed to the Father in the midst of his darkest hour. Jeremiah 33.3, 3, call unto me and I will answer you and I will show you great things that you do not know. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And two last things on this one. He prayed to his God. My God, my God. Jesus Christ knew who he was. And when you pray to God, know who you are in Christ. You are his child. You are talking to your God. And he not just prays to God, but he prays to the God of strength, the God of power, the God of might, the one. He uses the Hebrew term that describes how powerful God is. Because in that moment, what Jesus Christ was looking for was strength from the Father, and the Spirit. Lastly, this morning, is his satisfaction. Go with me to the end of this passage. And this is where it all comes together. Jesus Christ, the fruits of his labor, the reward of what he accomplished. The Bible teaches us that when Jesus Christ died and resurrected, that God gives him now a people for himself as a reward for what he did in the cross. Out of Jesus Christ's suffering comes the greatest blessing for all of humanity. We are redeemed because of Jesus Christ's blood. We are forgiven. We are favored. We have hope, mercy, and grace. All as a result of Jesus Christ's blood shed on the cross for our sins. The hope that we have is that Jesus Christ has a reward and that you and I are that reward. It's hard to imagine that. We often don't think of salvation as being a reward to Jesus. We think of salvation as being a reward to us. And and yes, there is a truth to that, but truly we are saved because God has rewarded the Son for the sacrifice that He made for our sins. He has given us to Him. John 6 tells us that. Listen to these verses. Romans, or Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Chapter 7 and verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ to bring many sons and daughters to glory, the reward of Christ for our sins. As we look at the 22nd Psalm, we see the significance of our sins. We see the amazing love of our Lord. We see a pattern by which we can live our lives because Jesus Christ's suffering, we are not promised not to suffer in this world. Matter of fact, Paul tells Timothy that those who will live godly in this life will suffer persecution. Here's what we are promised. We will not suffer in the next life. There will be no suffering. There will be no pain for those who have embraced what Jesus Christ has done for them there will likely be suffering in this life. And Jesus Christ gives us a pattern for how we can navigate through this life with the pain and the suffering that is meant to sanctify us and set us apart for the glory of God. He has given us a pattern through his own suffering of how we can suffer rightly. So my challenge to you this morning, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, that we find comfort and rest in the sufficiency of our Father and the display of Christ and his love for us, and that in that, we would be able to walk through this life, resting in his sovereignty, resting in his goodness, and resting in his grace. If you're here this morning and you've not embraced Jesus Christ, you've not placed your faith in him, humbled yourself, recognizing that you are incapable of doing anything to save yourself, that you cannot earn God's favor. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that if we work towards it, it's no longer of grace. If we embrace it by grace, it's no longer of works. So there are two camps. One says, I will deserve and earn God's favor and one says, I will receive God's favor because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. If you're here this morning and you've not embraced what Jesus Christ has done for you, there's no magic formula to it. Humble yourself before God. Seek his face. Acknowledge your own sins and your unworthiness and the fact that you can do nothing in yourself to deserve his favor and realize that Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price so that you could come to God in him freely. It's a free offer. It's a free offer. My prayer is that if there's someone here that doesn't know that, that you would humble yourself before God, place your faith in Christ, and be saved, and your life will never be the same. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the sacrifice that you endured. Um, in our place, to, to fully satisfy the wrath of God, your wrath, God, uh, on our behalf. Thank you so much for that. And I pray that if someone hasn't experienced that grace today, that they would do so by trusting what you've done and, and leaning upon Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for their salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would follow the pattern given us in Scripture. Life will be full of difficulty and heartache, But Father, as we rest in who you are, we recognize the need for faith in in your goodness. And we walk through life with with that and experience the fruits of that in peace and joy and love. Please bless us as we will partake of of the reminder in the Lord's Supper of what you've done for us in Christ's name.